um, is designed. Yeah, this series is um, is designed to uh, really familiarize ourselves with something that we think we know about. And who doesn't know about the Ten Commandments? Who doesn't know what the Ten Commandments uh, say? Everybody knows about the Gesserit Sedibos. So um, the goal of this uh, of this series really is for us to examine the Aseris Hadibros, the 10 statements. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, the Torah calls them Aseris Hadibarim, uh, using the masculine plural, not the feminine plural, but for some reason we call it the Aseris Hadibros. That itself is an interesting question. But the Aseris Hadibarim, the Aseris Hadibros, the 10 statements, uh, we want to examine them with fresh eyes, like as if we've never, we've never heard of them before. Uh, because that's really the only way to do it. And I'm the only one who didn't give myself a phone. If you don't have a phone, make sure to have one. Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to be looking at the Aserza Dibos. For example, suppose you never heard of the Ten Commandments. You never heard of the Ten Commandments. And then I told you... Um, that there are these things called the Ten Commandments. And you would immediately say, what do you mean Ten Commandments? There are 613 commandments. Why do you, what are you telling me about Ten Commandments for? What? So I'd say, well, God gave Moshe 613 commandments, but 10 of them, he spoke at Revelation. 10 of those commandments were given specifically at Revelation. Not only that, 10 of them he carved in stone, literally. That's where expre the expression carved in stone comes from, by the way. 10 of them he carved in stone. The other 603, he didn't carve in stone. Oh, really? So are these 10 commandments more significant? Are they more binding? Are they more permanent? Are they more holy? Uh, what exactly makes them unique? And while we're at it, the 10 commandments aren't the 10 commandments. 10 commandments are the 14 commandments. Did you know that? Uh, there are 10 statements, and that's what the Hebrew is. Aseris Hadibarim or Aseris Hadibros mean 10 statements. But if you're going to count mitzvahs, you're going to find that there are probably 14 mitzvahs in the Ten Commandments. Why? Because um, the, in Avodah Zorah, for example, the, the second mitzvah, it says, You should not have any other gods before me. There are four different ways of violating that, or four different different examples of how you can violate that avera, and that's and the, each one of them is a different mitzvah, and the in the list of six thirteen, Shabbos is not one mitzvah. Shabbos is zachar is yom Shabbos the Remember the Shabbos day to keep it holy, which we fulfill by making kiddush. One way we do it. Um, but there's also Los Sasa Chomelot statement. So Shabbos is two of the 613 commandments. So if you go through the 10 statements, the 10 commandments, you'll find that one of them has four and one of them has two. So there's 14 uh, commandments. I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm just trying to point out that we've got to, we have to understand what exactly is this set called the 10 commandments? What makes it unique? What makes it special? Um, and if, if we answer that question the wrong way, we're going to be creating a bigger problem, which is that if we make it stand alone as more significant than the other mitzvahs in the Torah, 
then we have a real problem. So, uh, where, how do we know what gives us the right or what is the implication of having a mitzvah that's more significant than another? What exactly is going on here? So we've got a lot to deal with here um, with, the, with the Ten Commandments. Uh, just uh, as an aside, one of my father's favorite stories, it's a classic, it really happened. That's what makes it classic. And he was once leading a discussion group with a group of, of ladies that happened to be. And um, I think it was a Hadassah group, happened to be. And uh, one of the uh, participants came over to him afterwards and said, you know, Rabbi, I, uh, I'm not a fully observant person, but I do keep the Ten Commandments. So my father said, that's wonderful. That means you're Shabbos observant. She said, is that in there also? <laughs> so, so he says, yes, it's the fourth commandment. She says, are you sure? <laughs> so, this is, so, uh, so, you know, the other thing is that for some reason, even many Jews have fallen prey to the, to the notion that the Ten Commandments are somehow universal because we say, I shall not kill, I shall not commit adultery. And everybody, civilized that we know at least, actually not true, but a lot of the civilized people that we know actually adhere to, thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not commit adultery, or that kind of thing. And therefore, we kind of think that the Ten Commandments are intended for everybody. Somehow Moshe took down the Ten Commandments from Harsinai for everybody, which is not true. The Ten Commandments are ours, and they're part of a covenant between God and Am Yisrael, and they're not intended any more than any of the other commandments. They're not intended for the nations of the world at all. Um, maybe the nations of the world think that they've adopted them in some way, but uh, that wasn't the intent of the author of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are designed specifically for us, and they're given to us at a moment of what we would call revelation. What is revelation? Revelation of God. God revealing himself to whom? To us, to all of Klai Yisrael. So we want to examine these Aseris Hadibros uh, through the prism of Revelation, which is that somehow these statements are the ones that are physically embedded in stone that Moshe Rabbeinu was to take down as a sign of the covenant between Hashem and the Jewish people. Not the other commandments, but these specifically during the moment of Revelation. Because that moment was a, a moment not only where God revealed himself to the Jewish people, but it's also a moment where God crowns Moshe as the authoritative Navi, the authoritative prophet for the Jewish people. Moshe becomes the Av Hanavian, he is the uh, father of all prophets, meaning not necessarily the greatest, but the one who is the chief prophet for the Jewish people. And he is authorized to be that, and he is not even authorized, is another word. He is authenticated by Hashem at the moment of revelation when everybody hears God talking to Moshe. They witness that, and therefore they now know that Moshe has become God's mouthpiece. And now they know that Moshe can be trusted. Because God, once God has said, Moshe is my mouthpiece. When he speaks, he's speaking in my name. We now know that God will not ever have Moshe say anything that he, God, didn't say. Because God is saying, I'm not going to allow, I'm taking him over. He's my amplifier, right? When I, when I speak, it'll be through Moshe. 
And when Moshe speaks, it'll be the words that I have. And as a matter of fact, to the point that Moshe couldn't have made up stuff by himself because God actually turned him into his uh, mouthpiece, so to speak. And Moshe, that's what it means. And Moshe becomes the, the absolute reliable prophet in Navi of HaKadosh Baruch. So all this happens in Revelation. So the Aseris and Dibros are bound up very much in, in Revelation. And we're going to define Revelation as that moment where God proves that he exists to us, that he proves that he has a covenant with us as a nation, and that he proves that Moshe Rabbeinu is a, um, is a prophet, is the, is the reliable prophet on that record. Now, I'm going to be, I guess, begin by pointing out something very interesting in Halacha. People aren't necessarily aware of this. The tour, which is one of the um, authoritative codifications of Jewish law, the tour says that every day when a person says Birchas HaTorah, what a Birchas HaTorah? Birchas HaTorah are the blessings over Torah study that everybody is obligated to begin the day with because since every Jew is obligated uh, to study the no Torah, shouldn't say that, we have to be careful. Since all men are required to study Torah, women are required to know Torah, that's another story. But since men are involved and required to be involved in the study of Torah, so everybody makes this bracha at the beginning of each day. And then it goes on, and we have another bracha as well, who has chosen us from all the nations. Says the Torah, that when a person says those words, who acknowledges God, who chose us from all the nations, the person should have in mind, Ma'amad Harsinai, the standard Harsinai, the, the moment of revelation. That's what we mean. God has chosen us from all the nations at that moment of revelation in Harsinai. And Vanessa uh, this is all referring specifically to that day of, of uh, Mama Harsinai. Now, the, uh, it happens to be as well that the um, Torah requires. We have to remember the day that we stood before God at Harsinai. That's one of the requirements that we perform every single day. And that's why our sitter helps us a lot, because our sitter, for example, right before we recite Shema, talks about the fact that we were chosen from all the nations and so on and so forth. And the brachas that we just made, that we just recited, um, refer to Mahabad Harsinai. Um, and, uh, and so, that, but that's what, that's what a Jew is supposed to fulfill every single day. So here we are dealing with the Aserah did was trying to appreciate exactly what their significance is. We're not going to be able to cover everything uh, today, um, meaning just as an overview of the of, of Aserah Divos, even in the overview, we're not going to be able to cover everything. But I want to give a, a sense of uh, what they are, wh what, what makes them a unit, um, what kinds of themes we might be able to develop from them, and uh, perhaps appreciate how they could be obviously something somehow representative of the entire Torah. Yes? Are you saying that the Yukos only have the Ten Commandments carved on it? Absolutely, nothing else. Nothing but the Ten Commandments are carved on the Torah. So I thought the Torah was written. It was, it was transcribed by Moshe at different times, at different points on parchment. Oh. Yeah, only the Ten Commandments. The first set of Ten Commandments were carved but were hewn by God and engraved by God. The second uh, tablets 
were healed by Moshe, blank, and then God inscribes them. But only the Ten Commandments, nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. And the rest of the Torah was given by God to Moshe, who then, per instruction, writes it down. And there's a lot of discussion in the earlier authorities exactly how this went. Did he write it in sequence? Did he write it, uh, so to speak, uh, with blank spaces in between and fill them in later? But, uh, but Moshe writes it down, transcribes the word of Hashem in the Torah. But the Ten Commandments themselves are inscribed in, in miraculous ways, supernatural ways on the, uh, on the what's that? The worm. The, no, the worm is something else. No, 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 this is beyond the worm. The worm is natural compared to this. This is, this is for example, the lead, just, uh, just so we won't uh, mystify people, but just to give a, a simple example. There are three dimensional. So no matter what angle you look at the tablets, you saw the same letters. It's not possible to be that. It's impossible for that to happen. The samach, which is which is more or less a circle or a square, or whatever you would say, a forced, it's a, a complete enclosed area, was suspended on the tablets. How does that happen? Right. Shnei Torah says you can look at either direction. So if you're in back of them or in front of them, you see the same thing. That's that's like, you know, they defied natural law. So <laughs> that's, uh, those, are the, that's that, those are the talents. Okay, um, I'm noticing a problem here, which is that somehow my phone is already down to uh, like 18%, if we have an extension point here, and I think we do. Wow, isn't that amazing? <clears throat> We'll solve that problem quickly. Okay. That's an accident. That's right, yeah, that's it. So, easier said than done. Let's remove the tension from the court. We're still here. They're all muted, so they can't laugh. That's what I'm the same thing. Yeah. As long as I don't hear them, I don't care if they laugh. Okay. Let's see if we can do it the other way. Amazing. Yeah, trying to, trying to remove the tension here. Let's see. Let's see. We've got plenty of cords. Put the wire on the tree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're gonna... Oh, that, thank you. We're not connected to the wall. Thank you. All right, we're going to get this done. You're still over the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? You're still over the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Here you go. What are you doing? To the, to the Zoomers, what are you doing? Can't hear. 
Yeah, we're, I'm doing nothing. I'm pl plugging you in so that you don't. <laughs> it's gonna happen. Sorry, I apologize about the distraction. Okay. You know, I have a very low attention span. Yeah, okay, good. If you can mute yourselves, uh, if you can mute yourselves now. Anybody else wants to make any comments about this before we mute yourself? That's fine. We have a comment section now. Anybody else with any any comments? Okay. Let's press mute and let's get back to this. Sorry about the distraction. Okay. So what I want to do first is uh, ask the question: What did Bnei Yisrael hear? What did the Jews hear uh, when they when they um, heard the Sarasid Nivros? That's a very important question. What did they hear? So there, there are, as far as I can tell, there are three major opinions um, that uh, don't necessarily agree with each other. We know that there was an experience in which B'nai Israel heard the voice of Hashem saying something about the Ten Commandments. What exactly? We'll see in a minute. So according to the Rambam, the Rambam, Maimonides, Rambam says that they heard the first two. Um, in a, a, a long and a, a unarticulated sentence, which means they heard the voice of Hashem and he said whatever he said, and they did not know what he was saying, but they knew that he was saying it. And then Moshe came along and broke it down into Anochi Hashem Elokecha Asher Hatzisicha. In other words, they heard something that was beyond uh, comp human comprehension. They just heard that God was saying it. Um, and that was only the first two. The other eight, they heard only from Moshe after now knowing that Hashem had articulated all these commandments. But uh, they asked, they didn't want to hear, they didn't want to hear the inarticulated statements anymore because they were overwhelmed by it. Um, the Ramban, Nachmanides, says that they heard the first two clearly. They heard exactly what Hashem said. Anochi Hashem I'm Lord your God to take you out of Egypt, etc. And they also heard the second one, you shall not have any other gods before me. Uh, and then numbers three to ten um, uh, were, were they heard in an unclear way. The first two they heard in a clear way, and numbers three to ten they heard in an unclear way. Rashi seems to indicate, it's an obscure Rashi, that they heard all of the 10 statements in one word that only God could do. One word was uttered by a Kaddish Baruch they heard them all. Then the first two were articulated clearly by Hashem himself, and then the last eight by Moshe Rabbeinu, right? So there's clearly a difference between the first two and the last eight, but exactly what that difference is, but it differs depending on what opinion you hold. So I want to show you, Sukkim, the reason you have Kamashim as I want you to see the passages here, just to gain an appreciation for what we're dealing with here. So turn to Devarim chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Page number in a second. Five nineteen. Chapter 5, 19. Okay. Page 970. 
And if you're at home, you don't need the page number, you just need the chapter and the verse. Chapter 5, verse 19. And the art scroll happens to be in the stone finish, it happens to be on page 970. Okay, this is right after the version that appears for the second time in the Torah of the Ten Commandments, meaning the second version um, that uh, the Torah, that Moshe Rabbeinu presents in his summary of 40 years in the desert. And Moshe has just uh, re-articulated the Ten Commandments. There are some blatant and some nuanced differences between what we have in Shmos when the Torah describes the Ten Commandments and here how Moshe Rothbeinu recounts them. And there are different opinions about how that works. We're not gonna get into that tonight, but I assume the various presenters are gonna deal with the differences and the different commandments as they come up. But uh, verse 19 here on page 970, These words did God speak, now these words, what do you mean these words? That means what he just said beforehand. That's all 10 commandments. So in that phrase, that's all of them. These words did God speak to your call on the mountain, through the fire, the cloud and the thick, um, I'm not sure what we call the RFL, the thick, um, how do they translate it here? Uh, the cloud. Um, yeah, thick cloud. Yeah, there's no real equivalent in English. Yeah. Um, the thick cloud, okay. Kol this great voice never to be repealed or, or repeated. That's a very a questionable translation. It's, 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 uh, art school knows what they're doing, but there are many other ways of explaining that line. But either way, and he, God, wrote them two tablets of stone by and he gave them to me. So Moshe right here says all these words that God speak to all of you. It doesn't say God spoke these words uh, to me or some of these words he spoke to all of you and some spoke to me. These words. So this would be one puzzle that we have to deal with. Now turn a few more pages to chapter 9, verse 10. And that's going to be... Page 980, 984. Uh, actually, uh, let's see. 986, thank you. Look at this passage. God gave me as two tablets of stone, written with the finger of God, Va'aleihem, and all them, according to all the words, which God spoke with you. So therefore, all the words on the tablets are the words that God spoke with you. Again, that seems to indicate um, all of them. Okay? Now let's look at another Pasuk. Pasuk in chapter 10, verse 4. Now we'll keep on moving forward, so to speak, on the finish. Page 992. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, 990. 990. Chapter 10, verse 4. Thank you. 988, 989. That's right. Okay. <clears throat> First of all, you get a sense of how basic this presentation of our CIA is that we're going to different chapters and we're still talking about the same moment. Chapter, so 
אוקיי, סו ויאמר השם למשה, מהשם סגר משה, אנוכי באילה, הנה אנוכי באילה הבאה, ואומר, בואו, עם כאן מציון, נפיק מזה בכלל, בעבור ישמע העם בדברי עמך, so that people will hear me speaking with you, וגם בך יאמינו מן העולם. So there's some indication there that God's speaking to Moshe. Not necessarily that they're hearing directly themselves. You can, you can kind of reconcile that with other things, but there's an indication that God's speaking to Moshe. Um, and then it says, uh, verse 19, 19, moving on a little bit. So, chapter 19, 19, same chapter. A few sentences later, page 404, toward the bottom. But he called Shafar The sound of the shofar was going stronger and stronger. Moshe Yedaber, Moshe would speak for Halakimya and then Avakola, God would answer him with a voice. So that also seems to be some kind of intermediary role, which again is not necessarily a contradiction to what we had before, but we have to fit that in with the other statements. And then uh, chapter 20, verse uh, 16. So turn another couple of pages to. Page 412. This is right after the Ten, the ten Commandments are presented. Let's go back to verse, um, just for a second, verse uh, 15 here. Verse 15. The entire people saw the thunder and the flames, the sound of the suffering, the smoking mountain. The people saw and trembled and stood from afar. They said to Moshe, you speak to us and we shall hear. Let God not speak to us lest we die. Moshe said to the people, don't fear, for in order to elevate you as God come, so that all of him shall be upon your faces, so that you shall not sin. The people stood from afar, and Moses approached the thick cloud, cloud where God was. And here, Hashem said to Moshe, so shall you say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven, you shall not, and then he goes on and gives some other commandments. Okay, so this also it has a, a very significant dimension of Moshe as an intermediary. Um, and... Uh, and there are others, so we can go on and on with this. I'm just trying to give you an example of all the clues. But one thing for sure, they definitely heard a voice of God. It's also true that Moshe was an was a, um, intermediary. And uh, the only question is, what did they hear when they heard the voice of God? And what did they hear the commandments articulated? Or did they hear something that was so awesome and so... Uh, so all containing that they couldn't even hear words because the words would be reducing what God had to say, but they had to hear that God said it. So they heard something larger than words and then Moshe in order to make it fit into their, into our brain articulated the, uh, those commandments that they heard or no, or they heard directly from God, real words. There's also a, almost a Kabbalistic discussion, which is significant to know that it exists, although we won't understand it. Did they hear a creation of God called the voice that God creates? God creates a voice. It's not his voice. It's a creation of his. Or did they hear God's voice? And what does that mean? Hard to know. I mean, hard to even understand. But there's a difference between hearing God's voice and hearing a voice that God creates for you to hear something from him, right? It's almost like, a, it's almost like an angel or something like that. But there's a lot of discussion in Kabbalah about that. But anyway, so this is one little aspect of the presentation of the Ten Commandments that I thought you should know. Now, there's a, um, there's a mechilta. The mechilta is a, uh, a form of madrash uh, that leads us to, a, um, to the right 
to start interpreting the Ten Commandments. Because we have the basic question, what makes them unique? Why are they here? Why are they the Ten Ones? For example, what is, you shall not covet uh, your friends everything, right? So I agree with that great mitzvah, love it. I love the idea of you shall not covet, really important. But if it wasn't in there, would I go around saying, I can't believe he gave me 10 commandments that he didn't put in, don't covet, right? <laughs> or better yet, how could he not put in, don't speak Lashon Hara? That's what should be in the 10 commandments, right? No, so what exactly is going on here? Why are these things there? What, is, what makes covet be so important that it's in the Aserah Tadibros and something like Lashon Hara? I mean, why don't they have the Chavis Chaim Heritage Foundation against, covet, against coveting, right? How can we only, have, you know? So we have to understand what's going on over here. So I'm gonna give you just the beginning of a medrash um, uh, that gives us the right to start interpreting things um, uh, beyond the, just the literal presentation of the mitzvahs. So the, uh, the Mechilta um, says, How are the Ten Commandments given? Five on this tablet, and five on the other one. It says, I am the Lord your God, and facing it is what's on the top of the, of the, of the second set. Don't murder, right? Don't murder is number six. So if you go, if you have a list, right? The first five ending with honor your father and mother. The second five begin on top of the list with Lasirza. So number one and number six correspond to each other, right? So therefore it says in Medrash, so it says the I am the Lord of God and facing it is don't murder. Telling, says the Pasuk, that anybody who spills blood is as if uh, they are minimizing the image of the king because a human being is a reflection of God's image. So when, when, you, when you kill, you're actually almost like killing the king, right? So the Medrash goes on like that with each of these, uh, with each of the mitzvahs showing you that the mitzvahs that appear on the right, right, um, correspond to the mitzvahs on the left, right? So we have, we are just very poorly presenting this. Um, we have God, we have idolatry, we have carrying, I'm carrying, the rain of May, Frank's rain of carrying, we have Shabbos, and we have honoring parents, right? And here we have, and that was number two, murder. Yeah, don't get it. Adultery. We have a steal or kidnap. It really is kidnap. A kidnap. We have false testimony. And we have covenant. Right, so the mid, so the Mechilta says that these face each other, so to speak, they correspond to each other. Anybody who murders is as if he is, the Medrash goes on to describe a king who has his image painted on the wall. And somebody goes and defaces his image on the wall, right? Like they do in, in Iran, is what I just said, right? So the point is that he's not defacing the king, it's just a picture of the king. But it is a defacement of the king because it's a reflection. Therefore, murdering a person is, so to speak, Medrash doesn't say murdering God, but it's like destroying the image of God, destroying God and set God's image himself, so to speak. And the Medrash goes on this way, uh, per, that, uh, that a person who, um, who commits adultery is as if he had, it's as if he had an idol before Hashem. 
So we're going to work on that a little bit. We're going to go and develop that a little bit more. But the Medrash gives us the right to do that by, by, uh, by setting it up that way. <clears throat> so there are a couple of things here to the structure to the structure of the of the uh, Ten Commandments that I think are worth pointing out. <clears throat> First of all, Shizkuni um, makes a very interesting point. He just points out that the, the commandments go from the from the uh, let me use this terminology here very quickly. They go from the more this language is almost the more severe to the light. Meaning, okay, number one is don't deny God's existence. That's pretty simple. Uh, not only God himself, but also even if you have believe in God, but you uh, you have you, you somehow attribute powers to representatives of God, independent of God. So you say, yes, God created everything, but I also Oh, allegiance to uh, something else. So that's less of a denial of God than, than the first one, but it's still pretty severe. Then, not only are you not allowed to worship other gods, but you're also not even allowed to take God's name in vain. You have to treat God with tremendous reverence, which is not idolatry, but that's like still. Not only that, but you have to testify to his existence. That's shocked. Not only that, but you also have to recognize that God is your parent. And you have three parents, you have to honor the parents, all three of them. Um, then over here, you can't murder a human being. Not only that, you can't betray um, your wife, uh, you can't betray your holy uh, marriage. Not only that, you can't violate another person by controlling them, you can't. Not only that, you can't violate another person by lying about them. You're going to court and you're lying about them. This is misappropriating their funds, you can't Not only that, you can't even relate to somebody else's property as something that you must have with the pressure of the person. And Mosachma means not only just covenant, it means actually pressuring the person until he finally agrees to sell it to you, but you can't stand the pressure anymore. Please, can I buy your car? Please, can I buy your car? Please, give me a price. Please, I'll pay you anything. That's, that's really what coveting is all about. It's not just desiring secretly. It's actually result, getting the result. So Chizkuni says that's a little structure that you see there. There are, there are other structures that we know. We know Say it is and it's true that it's not as simple as it sounds. The first set of tablets deals with mitzvahs that are between man and God. The second one deals with mitzvahs that are between man and man. And of course, this uh, this seems to work in the first four: believing in God, no idolatry, treating God's name with reverence, Shabbos, which is all about God created the world, honoring parents. That doesn't seem to be between man and God, but the answer is it is. Because God is the third parent, and parents really, and also we could say that this is really not between man and God, we could say it's between man and source. God is source, parents are source. This is really those authority. This is relating to authority. All this is about authority. Parents are authority, and Shabbos, all this is about having to do with authority. And this is man relating to fellow man. This is not about how we relate to authority, but how you relate to other people in society. You can't handle them, you can't. Have anybody you want. You can't control anybody else. Uh, physically taking, uh, kidnapping is. You can't uh, 
this misrepresent reality, especially with the text of the Supreme Court. And you can't do other people's stuff. Other people's stuff is their stuff, and you have to leave it that way. So that's between man and man. Now, a much more promising uh, approach is the one that I mostly remember from my father, and I never took notes in this, but this is really fascinating, which is it's not just two sets of five, five commandments here, one kind, another set of five, another kind, all important, but they actually teach each other. They, all, they actually reveal each other. Commandment number six teaches you about the number one, number one teaches you about number six, and together you end up with a principle that you wouldn't have had if you had one or the other alone. Um, same thing with the second one. We're going to go through that now and try to see what we can come up with. So, so for example, we already saw a little bit this and a little bit of this in the medrash when we when the medrash said that somebody who kills a person is like uh, is destroying the image of God, but it's more than that. So, why would a person? Um, what, what, what happens when a, what happens when a person murders somebody else? He decides that that person has no right to exist, even if it's a crime of passion. At that moment, um, you know you have no right to exist. Um, and at that moment, so what he's saying, he's determining that he, the, you know, things will be better off without you. You know, the world will work out a lot better if you weren't here. Uh, you're in my way. Uh, the you know the you know, novels would not exist unless they were about people who decided that they're going to eliminate somebody else because life would be a lot more convenient if those people weren't existing. Now, how can you murder God? Can you murder God? You sure can. Do you know that God doesn't exist for you unless you make him exist for you? In other words, God exists no matter what, but he doesn't exist for you unless you say he's your God. If you want to kill God, act like he's not there. He won't suffer but he'll be dead for you. So, you, you know, if, you, if you know, the Torah is saying, don't set yourself up as the one who decides who, how the world needs to be. The world needs to be minus that guy. The world needs to be minus God, right? And a godless world, the, be, the, 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 the way that God is eliminated is that he's ignored. Just ignore God, right? It's a, it's a, it's a way of killing him. So the point is that in a certain sense, this principle here is all about not setting yourself up as the ultimate authority in the world, both in terms of murdering somebody literally, but also even the ultimate authority of a God. I'll legislate him out of existence, so to speak, by, by ignoring him, the reality of his existence. It's inconvenient for him for everybody to be a God. The fact is, we see what happens in society when people think it's inconvenient. They come up with all kinds of extremely imaginative approaches. To, uh, to what life is about in order not to have to deal with the existence of God. Let's go on to number two, for example. Number two, so idolatry and adultery. So what, what, is, what does that sound? Where do you, what, what do you, what's a common denominator between those two? <clears throat> what's that? Betrayal. Perfect, betrayal, yeah. Uh, in other words, you have, you have a commitment, you have an obligation, you have a loyalty, an allegiance to something, and then, and then there's a betrayal, which is that I'm going to put something else before you, right? I have a commitment to my spouse, and I put somebody else before them, even though the commitment was, was absolutely exclusive. And in, uh, in the same thing with relationship with God, God says very, very explicitly, 
He's a zealous God. We hear that and we hear God is childish and can't tolerate sharing himself with everybody else. That's not what it is. God is saying that the relationship that I have with you is exclusive. I expect and demand to have a pure relationship in which you give your allegiance to me as your creator and not partially to me and the rest of your allegiance to the New York Yankees. No, the New York Yankees don't deserve any. The Atlanta Braves is another story. <laughs> the New York Yankees, they deserve, no, all of it goes, all of it goes uh, to a finish Barkley. So the point is that number principle number two is really about, about um, uh, if you join them together, so to speak, and you allow them to inform each other, it's about not compromising on, um, on commitment. Yes? It could be one of the terrible Noahide laws, and if it was just a Noahide law, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to learn anything about it. But since it's in Aceres and the and it's parallel to the all we're saying here is we're not saying that it's only true if it's here. We're saying that the that its position facing the other thing and form gives you a lot more information. Yeah. Um, kidnapping and carrying God's name. What is the common theme between kidnapping and carrying God's name and name? First of all, let's understand what's commandment number three. Thou shalt not carry God's name and name. Do not carry God's name in vain, which means that you use God's name to prove something that's uh, worthless. I swear that today's Monday, whatever, we're using God's name. So we understand that's a problem. We're profaning God's name, using it for nothing. But what does that have to do with, in what way, what's a common denominator between that and, and kidnapping? So I can, I, I'm guessing here, this is a little bit, um, not gonna say far-fetched, it requires a little bit of uh, appreciation. Ultimately, when, uh, what, what is, what's the sin of kidnapping? What's, what's, wrong, what's wrong with kidnapping? It's, what, it's not, you're right. No, you belong to you. You don't belong to me. You take your identity. Exactly. It's a total violation of who they are. Right. Exactly. It's a violation, so to say. And that's exactly what using God's name in vain is all about. It's a violation of the sanctity of Hashem's name. So the ultimate way to violate somebody's own sanctity is to control them. You rob them of them. If I kidnap a person, I'm robbing them of them. They had themselves, and I took themselves away from them by kidnapping them and running you know, and manipulating them. And that's um, and that's uh, exactly what's going on when I take God's name, which is designed for us to understand His essence, which is designed for us to relate to Him, which is designed for us to have reverence for Him and to actually bring him into the world and make him known in the world. And I take that in vain, it's a form of violating God, so to speak. There's amazing power. See, when, when God allows himself to be connected to human beings, he's making himself extremely vulnerable. Got, because you know, because God, God doesn't need us, right? So um, what, by, by opening himself up to a relationship with us, He's actually making it possible for us to damage him, so to speak. Again, he has no vulnerability in that sense. But, but uh, to damage his name, to damage his reputation, to make him uh, less uh, apparent in the world, that's an extreme vulnerability. The reason I point this out is because um, being vulnerable is a very difficult thing. 
it's not possible to have a relationship with another being without making itself vulnerable. Not possible. And that's why, um, and that's why, uh, that's what I'm talking about. When Hashem is, makes himself vulnerable, it's because he actually created the world in order to create a relationship with us. So this is a way of violating that relationship, violating the person's otherness and violating God's existence by taking his name away. The next one, Shabbos and false testimony. That one's fairly easy to see right away, but maybe not so easy. In other words, the whole point of Shabbos is that we're required to testify by our behavior that God created the world, gave us the power to be creative ourselves, and therefore we take one day and we stop creating the optical illusion that we're the creators, and we testify through our behavior on that day that God created the universe. False testimony is just that. We're required to use our testimony to be in touch with reality, not to, not to forge reality, not to um, misrepresent reality by saying, no, he did not lend $100. That's a false testimony. He did lend $100. And now you're in court and you're saying, I never saw it. You did see it, right? So you're, you're using, you're actually, first of all, you're violating the other person by, um, by uh, ruining his reputation, by making it impossible for him to function in business. That's another form of violation. And you're violating the purpose of creation by not observing the Shabbos. Or you're fulfilling the purpose of creation by observing the Shabbos, right? So therefore, there's a, there is a very intimate relationship between the prohibition against lying in court and the, and the uh, admonition to keep and observe the Shabbos. And finally, the last one, this to me is extremely productive when you look, when you, when you, when you get down to it. Honor your father and your mother. So it's a very difficult mitzvah for some people because my father and my, my mother, they weren't nice to me. They were abusive. They hurt me. Um, and by the way, it's real. Parents can be abusive. There are parents who are absolutely destructive. They do everything in their power to ruin the lives of their children. No question about it. But the Torah says you have to honor your father and your mother. For example, halachically speaking, I'm leading this is the Shachanar, I'm leading a meeting. And my father comes in and spits on me in a meeting. Uh, or he does something else humiliating like that. I am not allowed to respond in kind to my father. He's my father. I must show him respect. What does that mean? Why must I show him respect? Because what the Torah wants me to recognize is that no matter what, you have something which is precious, and the only way you got it is from your father and your mother, and that's your life. You, you know, it doesn't say love your father and your mother. It doesn't say feel warm and fuzzy about them. It doesn't say appreciate them because they were kind to you. It says honor them, because I want you to honor your existence. Your existence is so special that the fact that you got it from them is enough to honor them, period. End of story. So it's not about your parents. It's about honoring your own life. It's about respecting yourself, right? Now, what happens when I covet somebody else's thing? What's going on over there? I, so it's not about the car. It's not about the car. Yeah, Mark. It's because God has a certain, um, he gives everybody what they need and what each person's soul needs in life. And if we covet somebody else, we're saying that God doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. I don't have what that person has, but God knows what he's doing. 
you're very you're close to, to you're almost articulating exactly what Ibn Ezra says about this about this very passage. The whole idea it, 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 it implies a, a profound lack of faith that things are where they belong to be. Right. <clears throat> and when a person insists that it, you know, put it this way, literally the way to violate this, if a person wants to violate the 10th commandment, just watch, seeing you with your gorgeous swimming pool and wishing I had it isn't a violation, but trying muscularly to go and get it and make sure that I get it one way or another, that's already a violation. What's the, so let's say for example, let's say for example, um, you have something I want. Do you think that once I get it, my coveting nature will be satisfied? Not at all, because it's not about the thing. It's about you. I want your life, right? The point is that a person who, who actually believes that the life that he has has value isn't looking for somebody else's life, right? I, today I got in the mail, you probably got it also. The, um, uh, there's a company called Viking, which has this unbelievable cruise river cruise ships. Oh my God, they have a 15 day cruise down rivers of Europe where you can go down the bloody rivers of Europe where Jewish blood is in all the rivers and, and you can go to all the castles. It's unbelievable. You know, I mean, I, I, so I sit there and my, like my mouth is watering. Oh my God, those state rooms are great. And you can sit there and, and it's unbelievable, right? So I want to be that guy. I want to, then I realized, no, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be me. I actually want to be, I wouldn't mind being on that ship, but I, but I want to be like, you know, the point is that coveting has to do with with really has to do with recognizing the life that you have is the life that you're given and it's great and it's fine and you can make something of it. And so it, it, it very much related to honoring your parents because they both stem from a refusal to value and respect the life that you have, the life that you were given by Hashem with whatever he gave, with whatever accompanies. So therefore they, again, the commandment number five and commandment number 10 inform each other. You can actually understand one from the other. Um, and the truth is, I actually heard this from, um, from a couple of people. I believe, I believe I actually heard this from Rabbi Weinberg. There, there's a, um, there's a well, as we know, uh, Hillel said when asked to teach the entire Torah on one leg, what does Hillel say? He says, My What's hateful to you, don't do to your friend. Rabbi Akiva says, you have to love your friend like you love yourself. So what's the difference between the two? My What is hateful to you, don't do to your friend, is really a statement that what, what, when you have respect for yourself, then you can respect others. When you respect, when you respect who you are, when you respect the life that you have, you actually can respect others also as a as a reflect as a gift from God, as a reflection of the fact that God gave him a life, and that's the basis for a relationship. The basis for a relationship is number one is don't disrespect yourself, don't disrespect others. So in these commandments, we're being told, really, number one is there's a God in the world, and it's not about you. You're you're not the center of the universe. There's a God in the world. And respect the creator, respect the life giver, respect the source of life. And it goes down to honoring parents, meaning honor your life. That's why the reward, by the way, 
For honoring parents is a manuvishin yamecha, that your days are increased. Because when you honor your parents, you're honoring life. Okay, I give you life. I give you a long life. So the point is that when there's respect, when there's respect, then there's a basis for love. First comes respect. Once the respect is there, then we can move to and we can move to, the, to what Rabbi Kiva says. But Rahila's formulation of the whole Torah is first, it's based on respect. And it could be that he got it from understanding the Aseris of Divris. But the Aseris of Divris in Toto basically are about not violating, about not violating the other. And when you don't violate the other, it's because you respect the other. And when you respect the other, it's because they're in the image of God. And if they're in the image of God, what does it say about you? You're also in the image of God. And therefore, you respect yourself. Therefore, what you, what's hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. When you have respect for yourself and you don't hurt yourself, then you don't hurt other people because you're all equally creatures of God. Once that respect is there, then you could say, love your neighbor like you love yourself. But first, you have to have the respect. So these Aseris Adibros basically are a statement about the fact that there's a creator and, there, and we are his creatures and that he, life came from him and that we are worthy of self-respect and respect of each other. The same self-respect that I have for myself is the same respect that I have for you. So that, that could be one thesis, so to speak, to appreciate the Aseris Adibros. And again, we're led into this by the Mechilta that says that we should juxtapose one and six, two and seven, so on and so forth, and we end up with uh, the kinds of lessons that we get. I think that does it for tonight. I lost track of time. Where are we going? Uh, three minutes. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Uh, no power failure on the Zoom. Uh, just so you know, uh, Zoom people, we're, we're here we have about 17 heroes, I think it is, 17 heroes who braved the horrible wintry weather of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, to be here tonight live. And we have to the you people here should have over 30 participants on the Zoom here. So, okay. Anyway, the, if you look over there, and if you look at the uh, emails that you've received, we have some fantastic presenters coming up. Um, it's a wonderful series. Share the information with friends as well. Encourage them to participate, and uh, we will come out better for it. Yes, I don't think so. No, isn't that something? Yeah, Torah is free. Torah is free for everybody. Yes. Yes. Presented at eight o'clock, right. so that. But even that could be put up on the wall. Yeah, right, that would be good. It should be. It should be. Good. Let me let me talk it over with uh, the powers that be. <laughs> I always tell Robert Fox, by the way, I work for him. He doesn't work for me. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I know.